The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 65 The Actual Innocence of Donnie Bull Another innocent man falsely convicted and wrongfully put on Illinois death row. How and why does this despicable injustice keep happening? Prosecutorial misconduct police misconduct, jailhouse informants, state's key witnesses receive deals, reduced punishment in exchange for their false, fabricated testimony, suspect DNA and arson testing practiced by law enforcement labs, prosecutor presenting false evidence, police concealed the fact of missing evidence, inexperienced public defenders, inadequate defense investigators. In 1996, Donnie Bull was falsely convicted of two counts of first-degree murder, aggravated arson, two counts of concealment of a homicide. He was found eligible for and sentenced to death under the double homicide provision of the State of Illinois statutes. He was also sentenced consecutively to consecutive prison terms of 30 years for aggravated arson and five years for concealment of a homicide. Evidence and testimony from trial and all official investigative reports to the present time are essentially as follows. The case. On Wednesday morning, January 13, 1993, 
the burned bodies of Donna Tompkins and her three-year-old daughter Justine were found on a pull-out sofa bed after a fire had been extinguished in their Canton, Illinois apartment. The Autopsies The Fulton County Coroner R. Pavley's opinion and conclusion was that no foul play was indicated. These were victims of a house fire. The bodies were transported to Memorial MC in Springfield, Illinois for autopsy. Dr. Murphy, pathologist who conducted the autopsies, could not determine or discover a definite cause of death. Tests and x-rays showed no evidence of gunshot or bullet wounds, trauma, fractured bones, nor disease within these bodies. No soot or smoke residue had been found in the trachea of either victim. However, the tracheas of both victims were deep cherry red in color, signifying a high carbon monoxide level consistent with dying in a fire. By the process of elimination, the possibilities of asphyxiation by smothering and strangulation was reached. Obviously, this is a rather highly conjectural and challengeable concept because of no surface or deep tissue wounds, bruises, lacerations, etc. to the neck, mouth, or nasal areas, or inside the trachea, larynx, or bronchi of the tracheal bronchial tree. However, Murphy concluded that the most likely cause of death could have been from some kind of asphyxiation, but he could not say this for certain because there was no evidence of it. He also concluded that the victims were dead before the fire. His conclusion was based on the low levels of carbon monoxide gas in the bloodstreams and lack of soot in the tracheas of both victims. Both victims' blood and nasal drug scans were negative, cyanide tests negative. Donna's blood ethanol level was 0.054%, virtuous humor ethanol was 0.052%. There was no evidence of sexual abuse to the victims. Murphy also tested for the presence of sperm in the body cavities of both victims. He was able to retrieve a few spermatosa from the inside of the vaginal cavity of Donna's remains. It is reasonable to conclude that intercourse occurred somewhere between 24 to 74 hours prior to death since the morphologic survival varying reports of spermatosa. Basically, it would be unwise to make any hard statements in regards to the time when coitus occurred. The Fire Arson investigators found two unconnected origins of this fire. The sofa bed in the living room where the bodies were found and the floor near the door to the apartment. Testing and investigations revealed indications of an intentionally set fire using flammable liquids, extremely hot, fast burning, and intense fire that had been burned only a short duration of time, two to 20 minutes before discovery, determined and confirmed by investigators. Fire debris sample testing revealed kerosene, gasoline, and drinking whiskey had been poured on the victims in the surrounding areas of the two origins of fire. Keto of ATF stated that he found alcohol and drinking alcohol, ethanol, consistent with whiskey, specifically Canadian mist, on all the samples tested. Kerosene, gasoline, and whiskey all contain ethyl alcohol. No kerosene or gasoline containers were found at the fire scene. Broken portion of a Canadian Miss Whiskey bottle was located by ATF on top of the sofa bed near the top of the sleeping area. Another portion of the Canadian Miss Whiskey bottle with alcohol inside was located underneath the south side of the sofa bed. SFM investigator Anderson found underneath the fire debris on the floor just inside the door pieces of glass from the window of the door. Glass was slivered, clean, and not heat crazed. This indicated that the window in the door was broken before the fire occurred, or in the very early stages of the fire. Other glass found in or on top of the fire debris was discolored and heat crazed. 
The fire was discovered at 9.30 a.m. by Donna's boss, D. Haynes. Donna was his secretary at the National Bank of Canton, Illinois. Haynes had driven over to her apartment to check on her after she had failed to appear for work that morning. Getting no response to his knocks on the door, Haynes called the police. Before they arrived, he attempted to open the door, noticed no heat on the door handle, nor saw fire inside. He stated the drape still covered the window, and he then removed the AC from the kitchen window. Smoke rolled out, and he then broke the window in the door, unlocked it, stepped into the room, but could see nothing but a bright orange glow of fire. He then ran to the back of the apartment house, broke out a window to the back bedroom, and climbed inside to check if anyone was in there. Choked by smoke, he got out. Police and firemen arrived at 9.36 a.m. Investigators found no forced injury had been made into the apartment, only from Haynes, and firefighters breaking the glass in the door and windows. Investigator Anderson found the information furnished by Haynes in the first interview inconsistent with the observations and findings at the fire scene. Anderson's opinion was that Haynes couldn't have seen or done some of these things. Haynes stated that when he removed the air conditioner, smoke rolled out. This window was approximately 18 to 24 inches above floor level. Smoke would remain at a consistent height throughout the residence. The AC was no more than 24 inches from the floor. Haynes said he walked into the living room where he saw a glow of fire. If things were as he described when he opened that door, he should have been knocked over by a cloud of smoke or blown out from a backdraft. He would have had to have been on his knees or crawling to have seen into that room, or would have been standing in fire if he had made entry. Re-interviews of Haynes added some details and left some details out. During the interview, Haynes broke out into a rash from his neck to his forehead, stating that he didn't set the fire. Haynes also stated that maybe when he walked into the apartment, he kicked over some kind of container with accelerant in it. Investigators at no time mentioned accelerants to Haynes and did not tell him the fire was just inside the door, where he had indicated. Anderson's problem with Haynes' story is that every time he tells the story, he embellishes it and or made additions. His account of what he found and did was impossible to have occurred as he had explained. The DNA testing. In the course of an 18-month investigation into the victim's deaths, the police requested five men, suspects, to submit blood samples for DNA testing in comparison to the semen sample collected from Donna's remains by Dr. Murphy. 1. D. Haynes, Donna's boss. 2. R. Franciscovich, one of Donna's current boyfriends. 3. J. Tompkins, Donna's estranged husband. 4. T. Haynes, one of Donna's ex-boyfriends, and five, Donnie Bull, who police found had sold Donna the sofa bed. The police were given information that Donna and Bull had been secretly dating. Han, a forensic scientist with the Illinois State Police, received two vaginal swab samples from Donna's remains, one from Murphy, one from Detective D. Ayers, and the blood samples from D. Haynes and R. Franciscovich, J. Tompkins, and T. Haynes. Han identified the presence of semen from testing one swab, found the semen had heads, no tails, equal amount of live and dead spermatosa, an indication that the semen was disposed 24 to 72 hours, indicating time of intercourse, then sent the four blood samples and other vaginal swab to the ISP DNA lab in Springfield, Illinois. Metzger, a forensic scientist with the Illinois State Police DNA lab, found after running DNA testing on the four blood samples and semen sample found from the vaginal swab, none of these samples matched. 
Later, police obtained a court order to get blood samples from Bull for DNA testing in an unrelated aggravated battery case in March 1993 that Bull was arrested and being held in jail for. Han received Bull's blood samples, did testing for the unrelated case, sent the sample to Metzger. After he separately analyzed and ran DNA tests on Bull's blood sample, Metzger compared Bull's blood DNA test autorads to Donna's vaginal swab sample and the other four men's blood DNA autorads and determined they had matched. However, Bull's blood sample DNA was never tested in the same test with vaginal swab evidence as the other four blood samples had been done. The determination of this match was made by looking or comparing two photos to one another. The Ring Evidence Investigators had found Donna's Sekio watch and gold initial ring with DJA engraved on the top, located on the kitchen counter in the apartment. Later, while Bull was incarcerated for the unrelated battery charge, police went to R. Hillmeyer's home. Hillmeyer was a girlfriend of Bull's, where he had been staying only a short time before his arrest on the unrelated charge. Police asked Hillmeyer if they could search through Bull's things. They did not have a search warrant and could not explain to Hillmeyer what they were looking for, only saying, investigation into the deaths of Donna and Justine Tompkins, anything that may show his involvement. Hillmeyer signed a written consent to search her home. Police made search of Bull's things only. In the bedroom that Hillmeyer had previously shared with Bull, police found on the floor beside Bull's dresser, in the corner, a closed solid black Irish cream liquor box, belonging to Bull, that he had made into a piggy bank. Police opened the box and it contained coins, a key, and some rings. Police took the two rings and key, giving Hillmeyer a receipt for the three items. The key was found to have been to an old apartment of Bulls. Police showed the rings to several of Donna's friends, family, and co-workers to see if anyone could identify them as belonging to Donna J. Tompkins. Donna's estranged husband could not identify any of the rings as being Donna's. A co-worker, Falk, and Donna's sisters told police that one of the rings, gold with a white stone in the center with a red garnet on each side, looked similar to a ring that Donna was given by her mother and had worn for years. Falk was positive that the center stone in Donna's ring was an opal. Franciscovich told police that Donna wore a gold ring with a white center stone on her right hand and that it had her mother's initials on the inside of the band. T. Haynes told police the white stone ring looked similar to a ring that Donna wore. He also identified the initial ring, the one police had located in the apartment on the kitchen counter as belonging to Donna Tompkins. Police received a 1990 family photo from Jay Tompkins of the Tompkins family, showing Donna wearing a ring. Police took the photo to the Illinois State Police Lab and requested the right hand ring area of Donna's hand be blown up then took the white stone ring and blown up photo to a jeweler, Reichardt's Jewelry, in Canton to see if the white stone ring was the same ring on Donna's hand in the blown up photo. The jeweler stated they were consistent but could not say the two were 100% the same. He stated for sure that the white stone was not an opal and no initials were on the inside of the band. He had made several of these same rings himself that looked just like it and you could probably find hundreds of those rings out there that looked just like this one. Subsequently, during Bull's trial, Donna's sisters, co-worker Falk, and T. Haynes much better ID'd the white stone ring, which was found in Bull's piggy bank, as belonging to Donna than in their earlier police statements. 
jailhouse informants. Shortly before Bull's incarceration in the county jail on the unrelated case, one of Fulton County's jailhouse snitches, Harold Crow Crozer, had been arrested and charged with two counts of aggravated battery for the beating of his estranged wife and her sister. Also pending were DUI, driving while license expired, and illegal transportation of alcohol charges. Bull's arrival in jail, he was put in the same cell block with Crozer. The first time Crozer talked to police about Bull's many alleged conversations with him, Crozer's felony charges were reduced to all misdemeanors. His DUI, suspended license, and illegal transportation of alcohol charges were all dismissed. He was also released from jail. Crozer claimed in three police statements and testified that he had several conversations with Bull regarding Donald Tompkins. In one, Crozer claims that he and Bull were watching a program on TV about DNA. Afterwards, Bull asked him about DNA and if it could show how long sperm was present. He stated Bull then told him that he had had sex with Donna a couple days before her death. Next, Crozer claims that Bull told him that he and a co-worker Mike went over to Donna's apartment after the fire in the Wright's furniture truck and saw an object laying in the yard. They crossed the police barricade, walked into the yard of the residence, and was stopped by a security police officer who made them leave. Testimony from police and security police indicated the story was false, and the incident never occurred. Another claim by this Crozer was that Bull told him that Donna and Bull smoked marijuana and snorted cocaine together all the time. Donna's blood and nasal drug test scans were all negative. Crozer admitted to having been convicted in the past of armed violence, drug conspiracy, obstructing justice, and unlawful delivery of a controlled substance, and being an informant before and also that some of his pending charges have been dismissed. So it turns out that most or all of Crozer's statements and testimony are false and fabricated. However, Crozer never admitted, nor did the prosecutor ever release, the fact that Crozer received a deal for his testimony, but was court-ordered to tell the defense before trial. Another Fulton County Jailhouse snitch, Chris Chester was serving time in IDOC for a reduced armed robbery conviction where he got a deal for turning in others. In 1994, police arranged a transfer for Chester to a prison bowl with serving time in for the unrelated aggravated battery conviction. Police sent Chester instructing him to get a confession from Bull to killing Donna and Justine Tompkins. Chester was put in a cell with Bull for only one day because the next day, while Bull was working or in school, Chester was out on the yard and a routine shakedown was done of that cell. Chester at the time was a gang member of a gang known as the Northsiders. During this shakedown, officials found hidden in Chester's property a 9-inch homemade knife. Bull and Chester were put in separate segregation cells. Two days later, Chester tried to send Bull a note, but it was stopped and confiscated by officers. The note was Chester offering Bull $5,000 in cash to take the blame for the knife. The next day, Bull was released from segregation. Disciplinary dismissed, Chester remains in segregation. The same day, Chester called Detective D. Ayers at the Canton Police Department. This conversation was recorded and written out into a transcript. Chester's first words to Ayers, Hey, so you ready to go to the parole board for me or what? Ayers replied laughing, What did you do for me? Chester tried two times to describe the details of his claim of Bull's alleged confession. From the recorded and transcript of their conversation. First try. Chester. I got it all written down to, to make a long story short. He didn't get there till about midnight and she was already drunk. Okay. They started arguing. He sat on top of her and put his fingers over her mouth and in her nose. Suffocated her. 
He started panicking, wiped the fingerprints down, did the same thing to her daughter, and uh, wiped the fingerprints down. Thought he forgot something. He left, went to his car that was parked by the fucking junkyard. Thought he forgot something, went back and was afraid that, you know, some soil samples or something on his shoes or shoe prints. That's when he put the ashtray in the bed and set the place on fire and then left. Airs. Sighs. Uh, I don't know here. Some of it ain't exactly matching up, Chris. Second try. Chester. That's about here. Here's what I, here's what I wrote down. I'll tell you exactly what I wrote down. Long pause. Hands over face. Suffocated her. Argued over habits. Argued over habits and friends. Wants to stay. Stop seeing him. Wants to see someone else. They start to argue. He starts shaking her. Says he blacked out. Comes to, hands over her face. Panics. Wipes fingerprints off of everything. Went after her and is wiping fingerprints. Did the same thing to the daughter. Starts worrying. Left early. Come back early in the morning. Thought he had forgot something. Uh, put an ashtray in the bed to burn the place to make it look like an accident. Ran to car parked by junkyard. Said he was drunk. Slept in car because there was no other place he could stay for now, but had been in house several times in the past. Met her by delivering couch from Wright's furniture. That's how they met, when he delivered some furniture from Wright's. Uh, furniture store. Errors. A lot of this stuff, actually, I need some more stuff that wasn't out in the paper in common knowledge. I need something that he says that pretty much only I know, or the guys involved down here know. The rest of this conversation is Chester telling heirs. Next time it'll be perfect, and that the knife isn't his. Uh, yeah, I can't do anything for you if you get in trouble down there, you know? Ayers tells Chester he will try to get you guys put back in the same cell so you can get some more stuff. Maybe you can make up some things. Maybe he'll talk about it. However, you need to do it. Bull and Chester were never put back in the same cell or in contact at all. However, a month later, Chester sends Ayers a letter with his third version of this alleged confession. Third try. Was out drinking, decided to go to the house. Let self in with key left in mailbox. Goes upstairs. She is lying in bed drunk. She asked him what he wants and he says you. She says they can't see each other anymore. She has seen someone else. He is the wrong type. It was a mistake to get involved in the first place. All he wants is money for drugs and to have sex with her, he said. He tried talking to her. She became belligerent and slapped him. He said he came out of a blackout, was sitting on top of her with his hands over her face, panicked. Started wiping down fingerprints all over the bedroom. Here's Kid. Goes to see Kid. Does the same thing to daughter. States he doesn't know why. Just did it. Leaves. It is early morning. Goes to car that is parked by junkyard. Gets ready to leave. Starts worrying. Left something behind. Goes back into house. Goes to the bedroom. Puts ashtray in the bed to make it look like an accidental fire. Takes lighter and starts fire around the house. Leaves, goes to car. Drives around until fire is noticed. Then goes to partner's house. Met with her delivering furniture to her house from rights. Never went to the bar where she worked because she didn't want people to see him with her. Used to pick her up at the back door of the bar. He said he didn't mean to do it. Blacked out and came to on top of her. Said that the last thing he remembers is her slapping him. Then coming to on top of her. Chester's testimony at Bull's trial remains somewhat the same as the letter, the third version, that he had sent to Ayers. 
He also stated that he wasn't getting any deals for his testimony. During cross-examination by Bowles' defense attorney, he only asked Chester about saying to errors, Hey, so you ready to go to the parole board for me or what? Then he asked Chester about past convictions. Bowles' attorney never asked Chester about all the changing versions that he had made in Bowles' alleged confession, or about money offered to Bowles to take the blame for the knife that was found in his property while he was working as an agent for the state. State's Other Witnesses J. Day, Bowles' girlfriend's mother, was questioned by police on 325-93 if she had seen Bull in Hillmeyer's car or other car on the morning of 113-93, day of the fire, during her driving her grandchildren to school just before 8 a.m. She describes her normal route and did not observe Hillmeyer's car anywhere. Almost a year later, on 127-94, police questioned Day again. This time she recalls seeing the car parked behind the milk plant at 7.30 a.m. or 7.45 a.m. That's near the Tompkins apartment. At Bull's trial, Day even described the location of the car and the way it was facing, as well as a completely different route than she took that morning. Dee Nell, a good friend of Bull's, having known each other since kindergarten, was questioned by police on 3.26.93 about the activities of the night of 1.12.93. Nell describes the party at Bull and Hillmeyer's house that evening. About 1.30 a.m. to 2 a.m. early morning of 1.13.93, Bull gave him a ride home in Hillmeyer's car. No describes the route they took, only stopped being at a gas station to get cigarettes. On 3.30.93, Nell was questioned again by police and stated the same as before. A year later on 3.14.94, special agents picked Nell up and questioned him again in the back of the agent's car in front of a friend's house. Nell stated the same, except added that Bull and him took beer with them when they left, rode around Canton for a while drinking beer. Bull drove slowly by Tompkins' apartment two times. Each time, Bull made remarks about how he would like to fuck Donna Tompkins. However, during Bull's trial and on cross-examination by defense, Nell stated that the agents were putting words in his mouth, and he said what they wanted to hear. They were also calling him names, bothering him every day. Nell stated he made the statement because that's what they wanted. Jay Wright testified that, while at a bar, Bull was talking to one of her girlfriends, Kay Hammond. Wright said that she overheard their conversation, hearing Bull say he could kill somebody and get by with it, and not get caught. However, a detailing police report from Hammond and her and Bull's conversation completely contradicted Wright's testimony. Wright admitted that she and Hammond had been drinking alcoholic beverages that evening, and it was noisy in the bar. Defense attorney did not tell the court about Hammond's different version, failed to call Hammond as a defense witness, failed to call the police officer who interviewed Hammond as a defense witness, and failed to even impeach Wright during her testimony with Hammond's police report. L. Naus, a housekeeper for the apartment right next door to Donna's apartment, testified that on the morning of the fire, she arrived at 8.15 a.m. She took the garbage out. That took her around the apartment house. She did not see Bull or anyone, didn't see or smell smoke, and never heard any noises from the other apartments. At 9.22 a.m., she saw Donna's boss, Haynes, arrive as she was outside putting her cleaning stuff into her car. Jay Schaefer testified that he drove past Donna's apartment on the morning of the fire, about 9.15 a.m., on his way to pick up his wife, Kay Schaefer, who babysat Justine sometimes. He didn't see Bull or anybody or anything unusual. At 9.35 a.m., the Schaefers drove back by Donna's apartment and saw smoke. They also saw Donna's boss, D. Haynes.
While Bull's direct appeal was pending in the Illinois Supreme Court, Bull and governmental agencies received a five-page letter signed, Sincerely, the Honest Police Officers of Canton Police Department, dated 8-1-98. The letter accused numerous City of Canton officials of a list of misconduct over the last 15 years. One of the allegations in the letter was about the concealment of missing evidence in the Bull murder case. The letter stated, Evidence that was collected from one of the victims came up missing and wasn't sent to a lab for testing and couldn't be located before the trial. Detective Ayers and Detective Bowden were given written orders from Chief Elam that they were to conceal the fact that this evidence was missing. Could this evidence prove Donnie Bull did not commit the murders? The most despicable thing is Bull could be sitting on death row for a crime he did not commit. State Police, FBI, State Appellate Prosecutor's Office did investigations into these allegations and determined with one exception, none of the allegations merited further review. The exception was that an item of evidence was missing in the Bull case, but was not due to any negligence on Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner's part. Case closed. However, let us not forget the evidence is missing and the fact it was concealed by the Canton Police Department. Since then, Detective Ayers was fired for numerous civil rights violations. Elam had accused Ayers of writing the letter. Bull's Post-Conviction Investigation Petition Pending Bull's post-conviction counsel and investigations have revealed that the two Fulton County snitches, Crozer and Chester, were offered and given deals by the prosecutor and police in exchange for their false testimony, which was not turned over to the defense as the court ordered be done. Information indicates that right before Chester was to testify, he was given some instructions by the prosecutor on Bull's alleged confession and to act out on the witness stand of how Bull allegedly put his hands over the victim's faces to show smothering because the prosecution's theory of the victim's deaths by strangulation wasn't working very well. Post-conviction counsel sent an investigator to examine the ring found in Bull's property, allegedly belonging to Donna Tompkins. Accompanied by a court clerk, the investigator took this ring to a jeweler who examined it, found there were no initials inside the ring as Franciscovich told police that Donna's ring had her mother's initials inside it. The jeweler also indicated that the ring did not appear to have been modified as Donna's sisters testified and that Donna's ring had two garnet stones added on. Investigators took photos of the ring at various angles, also took photos of the family portrait which Donna's estranged husband had given the police. These photos developed indicate the ring found at Bull's property is not Donna's ring. Photos of the ring on Donna's hand in the family portrait and the ring found in Bull's property show the bands of these rings are distinctively different. The middle stones are shaped differently, one being oval-shaped and the other a rounder-shaped stone. Post-conviction counsel is seeking the court to order microphotography be done on the original items to conclusively prove that these are two completely different rings. Bull's trial counsel failed to investigate the present various evidence that made an inadequate defense for Bull. When trial counsel was informed by their DNA expert that he was suspect of the state's method of DNA testing in this case and did not think that Bull's DNA matched that found in the semen recovered from Donna's remains, counsel should have requested independent DNA testing be done and independent microscopic experts to examine the vaginal swabs to characterize the semen's density to show the time that intercourse occurred. 
Also, he should have responded to the test results of the hair samples found at the crime scene that did not match Bull's hair samples. That is now being requested in Bull's post-conviction petition. Bull pleaded innocent in this case, yet trial counsel never investigated or presented an alibi defense or let Bull testify. Bull made statements to the police of his whereabouts on the night of 1-12-93 and to the early morning hours of 1-13-1993. Essentially, the last time he had ever seen Donna was two or three days before her death. That was the last time he had been with her and had had sex with her. On the night of the 12th, Bull had a big party at Hillmeyer's house where he was staying. About 2 a.m. or later, being the early morning hours of the 13th, he borrowed Hillmeyer's car to take Nell home. He left Nell's and on his way back to Hillmeyer's, he was going a little bit fast and went over the railroad tracks on Oak Street. He lost control of the car and went into a fishtail sliding, then slammed into a snow embankment on the side of the road. He backed over it and started on his way when he noticed the car was pulling to one side. He stopped, got out, and found that the front driver's side tire had blown out. He pulled over to the corner of Oak and Second, about two blocks from Hillmeyer's, and tried to fix the flat with a spare. However, two spares were also flat. The carjack slipped out and hit his leg. Bull got back into the car to get warm. He fell asleep and was woke up by some older man. It was light out, and he took one of those tires to the Usco gas station on 5th, about three blocks away, put fix a flat and some air into the tire, went back to the car and put it on knowing it might not hold. He then drove to Phillips 66, a repair station, about two miles across town. He then had the tire repaired and got an estimate on four used tires for the car and receipt for the tire repair so he could explain to Hillmeyer what had happened. When Bull arrived at Hillmeyer's, in getting out of the car, he looked up at the street toward Bork's junkyard and saw smoke. But when he went into the house and was explaining to Hillmeyer about the car, they heard sirens. Bull told Hillmeyer and her mother that he had seen smoke going across the road by Borks. Bull didn't go to work that day because he was hungover and had an injured leg. Later that day, Bull went and had the used tires put on. Hillmeyer gave testimony as a state's witness that Bull did give her a receipt for the tire repair and the estimate for the four used tires that morning of the fire. Reports and information a year later from employees at Phillips 66 was they couldn't recall now for sure if Bull was there that morning, but they cannot say he wasn't. They said Bull had had repairs done there before, and they did know him. However, they wouldn't have any receipts now. Other information was if Bull had repairs done in the morning, it would have had to have been after 8.30 a.m. because of their morning rush time, and to repair a tire on a car would have taken at least 35 to 45 minutes. Arson investigators say the fire only burned 2 to 20 minutes. Fire was discovered at 9.34 a.m. by Haynes. Firefighters arrived at 9.36 a.m. Sirens had been going off. Sirens had been going off, putting bullet Hillmeyers right before 9.36 a.m. How could Bull be at Phillips 66 after 8.30 a.m., have any tire repaired that would take at least 35 to 45 minutes, and then be at Donna Tompkins' apartment house allegedly killing two people, setting a fire to cover it up at the same time the cleaning lady and Haynes are both there, without being seen by anybody? The times don't add up. It would have been impossible. Trial counsel had all of this information and an alibi, but did not investigate or present it. 
post-conviction counsel's investigation into the time of the death of Donna Tompkins was revealed when they sent Donna's autopsy and lab reports to a toxicology lab to be examined by expert toxicologists, which revealed that Donna died approximately one hour following her final consumption of an alcoholic beverage. Based on Donna's reported blood alcohol level, 0.04% and virtuous alcohol level of 0.052%. Also estimated by Donna's body weight and blood alcohol level that she had approximately three alcoholic beverages in her system at the time of death. However, Donna's phone records show that she was talking to Franciscovich on 1-12-93 at 9.35 p.m. Franciscovich stated that Donna told him she was drinking apple cider and schnapps while she was talking to him. How long would it take to drink three drinks if one started at 9.35 p.m. or before? Two or three hours. It is being estimated that Donna may have died around midnight or a short time after. Bull never even left Hillmeyer's until 2 a.m. or later. It is being examined by experts and has been estimated that Donna Tompkins was dead before Bull left Hillmeyer's. Due to inadequate investigation and defense by trial counsel and the prosecutorial and police misconduct, another innocent man has been falsely convicted and wrongfully put on Illinois death row for a crime he did not commit. End of report. Signed by Donnie's attorneys, Alan M. Friedman, Carol R. Hess, Kathy Kelly, Midwest Center for Justice, Chicago, Illinois. September 7th, 2002, Peoria Journal Star. Clemency petitions filed for most on death row. Springfield, Donald Bull on Illinois death row for the 1993 murders of a Canton woman and her three-year-old daughter, says new evidence conclusively supports his claim of innocence and that Governor George Ryan should grant him an immediate pardon. That disclosure is included in Bull's clemency petition, which was filed last month and is awaiting review by the State Prisoner Review Board. About 160 clemency petitions were filed recently on behalf of death row inmates, and Bull's is among them. The review board will make confidential recommendations to the governor on whether he should grant the inmates' requests before he leaves office in January. Families of murder victims, as well as the state's major party candidates for governor, have said that it would be a mistake for Ryan to commute the death sentences of all the inmates to life in prison without parole. Ryan has declared a moratorium on execution, saying that the state's capital punishment system is flawed. Bull's petition, filed by attorney Alan Friedman of the Midwest Center for Justice in Chicago, says that a ring found in Bull's possession didn't belong to the murder victim Donna Tompkins. At trial, witnesses had identified the ring as belonging to her. The ring was the single most damaging piece of evidence against Bull, the petition contends. This new evidence that Donald did not have possession of the victim's ring is further indicative of his actual innocence. Bull offered the other assertions to support his request for a pardon, and some of them echoed arguments made by the many of the other death row inmates seeking clemency. The arguments focused on the idea that the death row inmates were unfairly sentenced to die because they didn't benefit from relatively new reforms of the state's capital punishment system or from proposed reforms of the system. For instance, Bull contends that his defense lawyer at trial was trained inadequately and the prosecutors used a jailhouse informant to testify against him. An Illinois Supreme Court rule enacted in early 2001 
set minimum standards for training and experience for defense lawyers and prosecutors in death penalty cases. Earlier this year, a commission appointed by the governor issued 85 recommendations for improving the state's death penalty system and called for stricter rules on the use of jailhouse snitches. As of Friday, at least 157 clemency petitions have been filed on behalf of death row inmates, including about 20 who declined to sign clemency petitions themselves. Another half dozen or so clemency petitions are to be filed within the next several days. Literally a handful of death row inmates did not have their petitions filed by August 26th, as lawyers had aimed for the August 26th deadline in hopes that Ryan might decide on the clemency request before he leaves office. At least 11 other death row inmates with Central Illinois connections are asking for clemency, either a full pardon that would release them from prison or a sentence that isn't the death penalty. Amongst them, Arlie Ray Davis, a former Peorian, convicted in the 1995 kidnapping, rape, murder, and robbery of Lori Gwynn of Kiwani. Davis seeks a full pardon. Ladies and gentlemen, as several of the clemency petitions were even right out refused by numerous inmates, but Donnie Bull, inspired by new evidence, to the day still insisting his innocence, was one of the first inmates to file his petition. After six long years of segregation, isolation, and dehumanization, a small flicker of hope began to illuminate. But just 14 days later, on September 21, 2002, the Peoria Journal Star headlines read, Murderer Dies in Prison. But the publication took one more shot, stating, The convicted murderer of a Canton woman and her three-year-old daughter has died in prison. Donald Bull Jr., 39, died on Wednesday from natural causes of systematic failure, according to a notification received Friday by Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner. Bull was on death row at the Pontiac Correctional Center. I've talked to the families of the victims, Danner said. It was emotional for them to hear the news. Bull recently filed appeals in the case, tried to have the verdict overturned, and asked Governor George Ryan to grant him clemency, although that there was speculation at the time of Bull's murder trial that he and Diana, D-I-A-N-A, Tompkins, were involved personally. Danner said he didn't think they were. He said Bull worked at a local furniture store and delivered a fold-out couch to Diana's apartment once when she wasn't home. He said the two also met once at a Canton restaurant, but he thinks that was the only occasion they met before Tompkins and her daughter were murdered. Danner said Donna Tompkins' father, finally getting the name right, Donna Amicucci, lives outside of Illinois. The Tompkins family, which Donna married into, still lives in Fulton County, but family members could not be reached for comment. Danner said he is relieved for the families of the victims who no longer have to wonder if Bull's attempts to get out of prison will work. For the first time in nine and a half years, these families can begin disclosure, Danner said. The Livingston County coroner could not be reached for further information on the exact cause of Bull's death. However, ladies and gentlemen, it is none too obscure that it's virtually impossible to get information from states and correctional facilities about why exactly people die in prison. In fact, at every turn, prison systems fight to prevent this information from being released. It is extremely common for prisons to hide the true reason why people die behind bars. 
and any existing data on record is practically useless for determining whether people in prison are dying from preventable conditions. This may be a difficult concept to comprehend, and the mere task of attempting to raises questions about whether and how family members or community advocates should use the information to sound the alarm about especially dangerous facilities to help family and friends figure out if a death was preventable, either through proper medical care or proper protections for the inmates. By law, states are supposed to record the details of every death that occurs in prison. The Death and Custody Reporting Act, a federal law on the books for more than 20 years, requires states to fill out a four-page form that lays out basic information about every incarcerated person's death. Nonetheless, states are constantly giving multiple reasons for hiding this data. And additionally, hundreds and hundreds of prison and jail deaths go unaccounted for by the federal government. And some say that what the United States is allowing to happen on our watch in the prisons, jails, and detention centers nationwide is nothing short of a moral disgrace. The record states that Donnie died of complete systematic failure, which is essentially a heart attack. How accurate this information is, is entirely unknown. Just three days later, on September 24th, Pontiac, a prison official said Monday that convicted murderer Donald Bull of Canton apparently died of a heart attack last Wednesday, alone in his death row cell at the Pontiac Correctional Center. And officers of the prison found Bull unresponsive in his cell at 6.10 p.m. and attempted to resuscitate him, said Donna Delaney, an administrative assistant at the prison. Delaney said Bull had a heart attack and prison officials were told autopsy results indicated he had blocked arteries. Livingston County Coroner Michael Burke said he would not release information about the death other than to say it was due to natural causes. Ladies and gentlemen, the county coroner refused to release the information on Bull. The article does a remarkable job of diverging attention back onto the two victims, Donna and Justine which is completely justifiable, and one could say even ethical, moral. But that is given there are only two victims in this case and not three. However, the article does in fact refocus on the third victim, Donna Tompkins' father, Don Amicucci, who said Monday he remembers his daughter and granddaughter, with clarity unclouded by the passage of almost 10 years since their deaths. Donna was five foot 10 and beautiful, he said, she had big brown eyes and a smile that filled the room. He also talked of her strong and giving personality. He said three-year-old Justine could recite to him the stories of Dr. Seuss, naming each tale she used to tell him. Amicucci, 72 of Florida, said he plans to continue his vocal opposition to possible clemency from Governor George Ryan for the 159 convicted murders on death row in Illinois, even though he no longer has a personal stake in the decision anymore. The pain in the last 10 years may have become a little less dull, but the sense of loss of two beautiful children, that will never diminish, Amicucci said. I'm afraid the legacy of our family will have to live with that. October 1st, Peoria Journal Star. A tentative schedule released by the Prisoner Review Board shows more than 120 hearings are slated for October 15, 
to 18 and October 21, 23, and 24. Four separate panels of the Illinois Prisoner Review Board will conduct public hearings next month for most of the state's death row inmates who want Governor George Ryan to spare their lives. In a planned effort involving dozens of lawyers, clemency petitions were filed in late August for virtually all of the inmates on Illinois death row. A few more petitions have been filed since then. As a result, the petitions now covered all 158 inmates on death row, said Lockie Bowman, legal director for the McCarthy Justice Center at the University of Chicago Law School. He helped coordinate the work of the lawyers who filed inmates' clemency petitions. Some of the inmates declined to sign a clemency petition, but petitions were filed on their behalf anyway. One of the inmates who had signed his own clemency petition, Donald Bull of Fulton County, died of natural causes. The article goes on to state that the lawsuits are still pending, and amongst the various inmates scheduled for public hearings include Arlie Ray Davis, the former Peorian convicted in the 1995 kidnapping, rape, murder, and robbery of Lori Gwynn of Kiwani. It is important to state, ladies and gentlemen, that Arlie Ray Davis and Donald Bull, both of Central Illinois, were both sent to death row in 1996, which was a rare event indeed for the region. And on October 16, 2002, headlines once again read, Killer dies before clemency hearing. Heart attack claims Kiwani woman's condemned murder. Springfield, Arlie Ray Davis, a former Peorian who was sentenced to death for one murder but was suspected of more, died five days before a hearing on whether he should remain on death row. Davis, who would have turned 47 on November 8th, died of natural causes, said Livingston County Coroner. Michael Burke. An Illinois Department of Corrections spokesman said that authorities don't suspect foul play in Davis's death. Davis was found to be unresponsive about 7 a.m. Sunday in the condemned unit at Pontiac Correctional Center. Henry County State's Attorney Terrence Patton said he was notified Tuesday morning that Davis had died of a heart attack. I'm glad that this case is finally over. I'm glad that it's over for the victim's family, Patton said, referring to the relatives of Lori Gwynn. Peoria County State's Attorney Kevin Lyons said Davis committed at least two murders in Peoria County, but evaded charges partly because no bodies were recovered. We had the worst kind of case with him because we had no body. We would have him in the company of victims as they would leave, and then they would vanish off the face of the earth, Lyons said. I think he was a stalking, praying remnant of humanity that made no contribution to Illinois in or out of prison. The article goes on to state that on Tuesday, the State Prison Review Board began executive clemency hearings for more than 140 death row inmates. Davis's hearing was to take place on Friday. Davis is the third convicted murderer from the Peoria area to die in prison in recent weeks. Lee Adams, who was serving a life sentence for the stabbing death of his nine-month-old son, died October 5th at Menard Correctional Center in Southern Illinois. The Department of Corrections spokesman said an autopsy identified congestive heart failure as the cause of Adams' death. Donald Bull of Canton died September 18th, apparently of a heart attack, in his death row cell at Pontiac Correctional Center. I don't know what to say, ladies and gentlemen, without going down a rabbit hole of paranoia and conspiracy.
I could mention that a common fertilizer used in the American breadbasket is also used as a component for lethal injection and is kept on hand at death row prisons, including Pontiac Correctional Center. But in the interest of objectivity and the lack of evidence, I shall move on. We want to take you now to a breaking situation. The Illinois outgoing governor, George Ryan, is speaking now about the commutations of several Illinois death row inmates. Let's listen in. Governor George Ryan states, They've gone beyond the call. They freed the falsely accused. Moving ahead, September 20th, 2005, Peoria Journal Star, former Fulton prosecutor in judge race, Canton, former Fulton County State's Attorney Edward Danner announced his bid for the Democratic nomination of circuit judge. Danner, Canton native and attorney, will seek the Fulton County resident circuit judgeship nomination in the March general primary. He said his 26-year legal career combined with his experience as an active trial lawyer, have prepared him to perform the duties of a circuit judge. While in office, Danner tried the double homicide case of Donna and Justine Tompkins, committed by Donald Bull, of which Bull was sentenced to death. Three years later, August 19, 2008, now come the people of the state of Illinois by Special Prosecutor Ed Parkinson, of the Office of State's Attorney's Appellate Prosecutor and moves the court for entry of an order directing and authorizing the Canton, Illinois Police Department and the Illinois State Police to dispose of, destroy, and otherwise remove from its and of their control or possession any physical items of potential or actual evidence that was recovered or taken and held by it or them with regard to the prosecutions of the defendant in the above captioned matters, in support of which the following is stated. The defendant, Donald Bull, was prosecuted, found guilty, and sentenced to the Illinois Department of Corrections. The defendant died in prison. There is no further necessity for the retention of any items of physical evidence held by any police agency with regard to the case. Respectfully submitted, Ed Parkinson, Special Prosecutor. The motion was ordered, and the following pieces of evidence were destroyed. One sealed brown paper bag containing one handwritten letter, one typed letter, cash checks, and burned ash. One paper bag containing one handwritten letter. One paper bag containing miscellaneous letters and handwritten letters. One paper bag containing miscellaneous cards and letters. One paper bag containing one woman's cloth robe collected from room closet. One paper bag containing burned tax papers. One paper bag containing two pair of nylon stockings found in the bottom trash can in kitchen. One paper bag containing a book with David Haynes' name written on the cover. One paper bag containing one videotape, two VHS cassettes, numerous financial records, and an address book. One paper bag containing a red Christmas card and an appointment book. One paper bag containing three cigarette butts, three packages of empty cigarette packs, two Doral, and one Marlboro Light. One paper bag containing three cigarettes, butts, three packs of Durrell cigarettes. One paper bag containing one beverage can, one 12-ounce natural light beer can recovered from the victim's trash can. One paper bag containing one red butane cigarette lighter. One sealed manila envelope containing handwritten notes on National Bank stationery. 
One paper bag containing one gold necklace with pendant, stone missing, received from Rochelle Hillmeyer by Ken Kedzer. One sealed plastic bag containing one receipt for certified mail. One paper bag containing a stack of pictures, a phone bill, and miscellaneous cards and letters. One tagged item, one cassette tape of interview with Dave and Nell. One plastic bag containing one broken whiskey bottle found under a rollout couch. One sealed plastic bag containing one brown whiskey bottle found on top of rollout couch. One sealed bag containing one key. One sealed cardboard box containing fire debris samples. One cardboard box containing burnt electrical components. One brown paper bag containing an empty beer can, bank deposit slips, and three packages of cigarettes. An empty book of matches and one plastic contraception applicator. One paper bag containing one small multicolored leather purse with Donna Tompkins' driver's license inside. One sealed plastic bag containing blood collected from Donna Tompkins. One sealed envelope containing one audio cassette of Pauline Newcomb's taped statement. One tagged item of evidence, one cassette tape of dictaphone conversation. One tagged item of evidence, one audio cassette tape of interview between David L. Haynes and Bob Knutson. One paper envelope containing one Tompkins family portrait. Sealed cardboard box containing dictaphone tape of Chris Chester. One sealed envelope containing blood sample and DNA standards. One paper bag containing one black leather purse. Old cash checks, hair cream, miscellaneous papers, package gum, address books, and a dollar ninety-four in money and change. One cardboard box containing one burnt telephone. Five years later, 2013, Chicago Tribune headline reads, Illinois Chief Justice, who argued the death penalty, dies. Moses W. Harrison II, a former Chief Justice of the Illinois Supreme Court, who adamantly argued against the state's death penalty in the months before former Governor George Ryan's moratorium on capital punishment, died Thursday afternoon at Missouri Baptist Medical Center. A cause of death was not released. He was all about defending the rights of the common man, and it can be seen in his dissents, as well as his majority opinions, whether they be regarding a child who was injured or a criminal defendant who was not given his full and due right, and particularly in his criticism of the death penalty. Chief Justice Harrison gained national attention in November 1998 after pinning a lone dissenting opinion on the appeal of death row inmate Donald Bull, who was sentenced to die for killing a 30-year-old mother and her 3-year-old daughter and then burning their bodies. He said the state's handling of capital cases was profoundly unjust given shortened appeal periods and the accelerating pace of executions. He called the state's death penalty unconstitutional because the execution of an innocent person is inevitable. At the time, Illinois was under a national microscope, and Chief Justice Harrison appeared on 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace to discuss the issue. Chief Justice Harrison was looking to highlight some of the strongest cases against the death penalty, which led to his dissent in the Bull appeal. And ladies and gentlemen, the article goes on to state, 
that Chief Justice Harrison's support of Donnie's clemency is what turned the tide against the death penalty in the state of Illinois. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Ladies and gentlemen, if I may have your attention for one moment as I introduce Spoon River Gothic Season 2, Death Rides the Highway, a thrill ride fueled by murder and terror. The motive of this cross-country killing spree at its heart? Storytelling. And though this horrid crime is true, the story was birthed by imagination, as those people, the players involved, created their own characters and then took to the road to not only discover, but rain down upon their preferred setting. Then, through one unspeakable vile act after another, these characters wrote a story, an adventure only these characters could have dreamt of. Set free in a world where destiny quickly took one expected turn after the next, an absorbing tale of two individuals whose paths seemed destined never to cross, yet had. Meet 18-year-old honor student Lisa Dunn, whose seemingly idyllic life and background were undoubtedly worlds apart from 28-year-old self-proclaimed bad boy Daniel Eugene Remetta, a product of a turbulent, neglectful, and abusive upbringing, who found himself on a collision course with the criminal underworld from a young age. Growing up in the shadow of alcoholism, a childhood marked by habitual encounters with law enforcement, Danny's life was marred by violence and chaos from the start. In stark contrast, Lisa Dunn's life was on a trajectory toward college and a promising future. Until shortly before their fateful meeting, she embodied a well-cared-for, academically successful teenager from a loving and well-to-do middle-class home. But then, suddenly her grades slipped. She experimented with drugs and even ran away from home to Florida, signaling her growing discomfort with the life that had been assigned to her. And when Lisa and Danny's past crossed, it was at that crossroads, that crosshair in life, that caused an abrupt turn into not only uncharted territory, but terror. At Radio Verte, we aim to unravel this captivating tale of how these two vastly different individuals came together. We will deeply explore the intricate dynamics that led to a cross-country, multi-state killing spree, one marked and dog-eared for all time by early-onset mass murder, in a time of social change just at that dawn when murderous violence would spill out across the nation. As we delve into the narrative, we'll grapple with the haunting question, who was manipulating who? Who transitioned into an active accomplice? And with the complex interplay of Danny and Lisa's conflicting backgrounds and terrible choices, along with the influence of consequential figures like former altar boy turned cold-blooded killer Tagalong Mark Walter and hitchhiking Vietnam vet J.C. Catfish Hunter, just what sociopathic crimes would transpire. Follow along with Spoon River Gothic Season 2, Death Rides the Highway as we present a compelling true crime road saga that will challenge your understanding of human capacity for both darkness and redemption. Coming February 2024, wherever you get your podcasts. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review 
on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.